So it's nice to see everyone tonight. And I'm also quite aware there's a, a lot of new folks. So I'd like to welcome you. It's a, just a pleasure to have you come. Uh, we, we always ha- seem to have some people here for the first time each class, the first Wednesday of the month, sometimes more. And um, what I'll be talking about tonight um, is really a good match for coming for the first time because I'd, I'd like to explore the actual content of the practice we do here. Um, some of you know it, that the word Vipassana means to see clearly. And other ways of understanding it, it's to listen deeply or to touch and feel fully. So this practice is one really of intimacy, of really connecting moment to moment with what's happening. Now in honor of the see clearly component of it, I thought I'd try out a new way of looking outward. I got a call, I got an email from someone today who said, well, I'll see you tonight, but you'll, you won't see me because you never see who's here. <laughs> so I thought, well, let's see what happens. I still don't see her. <laughs> oh well. Last week I talked some about practice from the perspective of the kind of effort that we make or commitment we bring. As many of you know, there's not a spiritual tradition in the world where the awareness training isn't at the center, really, if we are sincerely interested and committed to waking up. It's right in the middle of them. The Buddha described it as ehipasiko, which means come and see. In other words, there's all these teachings about how it all is, but the bottom line is that the only way we can wake up is when we take our own body-mind and learn how to pay attention. And that there's really nowhere else to go and nothing else to do but just become aware of the life that's within and around us. As the Buddha described it, Buddha nature is inherent to all beings. All of us have the nature to awaken, have a naturally wise and compassionate essence. So our practice isn't to go become somebody different. We're not really learning something. Rather, we're almost remembering, relaxing back into who we are. And when we really get that, there can be this sigh of relief that it's already here, there's nowhere to go, and the way to experience what's here is really very sweet. It's one of paying attention and relaxing. So that's what we talked about some last week, the real essence of wise effort, the effort to be present. And the pathway, paying attention, but with a very relaxed quality of wakefulness, not tight, not tense. Now tonight I'd like to expand on that and really talk about how we can have our formal practice be genuinely creative, be a ritual that's very enlivening to us. And I'll talk about it both in terms of creating an environment for practice and also the components of what we are actually doing here. You know, what are the pieces of this practice? And I'm hoping this fall um, 
to really emphasize the aspect of experiential practice in the talks and in what we do together so that those of you that want to go deeper in your daily practice of sitting um, can get a little more guidance and have more chance to ask questions and really check in on how it's going for you. It's in that spirit that if, as we explore tonight, questions come up that relate to what you find happens at home when you try to sit or here during the sittings, to please feel free to ask, because if you have a question, I promise you other people do to have that same question, so it's always helpful. The secret to beginning a life of deep awareness and sensitivity is to learn to pay attention. And that is the common denominator of all spiritual traditions I've run into. Now there's a classic story I love, and in this story, a man is sent to prison, and he felt his life was over and his only hope was to escape. So he begged and pleaded with a friend to in some way slip him some sort of a tool or an instrument that could help him get out and get free. You know, some wire, pliers or a knife or a razor, anything, ropes. So what the friend sent was a prayer rug. And the guy was really disappointed, really disappointed. And he kind of walked around his room and avoided the prayer rug. And, um, but after a while, because he did have a good deal of spare time, he finally sat down on that <laughs> prayer rug. And he began to sit more and more hours of the day, kind of contemplating and reflecting. And after a while, he began to pay attention to the rug itself. And he began to look and notice that the design that was woven into the rug was very, very compelling. And as he paid more attention to the pattern, he discovered that it was the pattern of the lock to his prison door. Now, one of the great truths of spiritual life is that exactly what's going on in our life right now, the difficulties, the obstacles, the frustrations, have contained within them exactly the teachings, exactly what we need to become more compassionate and wise and free. It's right here. And so when we cultivate our attentiveness, what we're paying attention to is right here, just like the prayer rug we're sitting on or the person that we hang out with most in our life, or the plants, or the animals, or the work we're doing. It's the actual stuff of our day that we're learning to pay attention to. Now, cultivating attention has been likened to cultivating a garden. Life naturally blossoms and grows, and so do we. Even if you weren't intentional, we're we're waking up. All of us are growing, more aware. And this can be cultivated with water, with fertilizer, with light, with practice. I love this story um, told by a disciple of Yogananda, Paramahansa Yogananda. And this disciple used to experiment with different plants. And he describes finally cultivating a thornless variety of a cactus. And the way he did it, he continuously sent this cactus messages of safety and love. And he just poured it in and this thornless variety developed. 
in the same way we need to surround our practice with a certain kind of intention or message that's patient and loving and kind. One of the words that helps me is to sense that there's, there's a reverence to our practice, that to watch and see, are we being habitual? If we decide, okay, I'm going to sit and meditate for 20 minutes, are we dragging ourselves? Are we forcing ourselves? Are we grudging towards it? Or is there really a sense of care, of reverence around the process? I have a, a habit in my daily life of going for a walk through these woods right near my house. And I begun more and more to notice the difference between one day and the next. And sometimes it's kind of like I'm taking it like exercise and I'm kind of tromping and I'm off thinking about what's coming next and are talking with somebody, but I'm preoccupied. And at other times there's this sense of, padding through the woods and it's like I'm in this amazing cathedral and it doesn't matter what the weather is. There is something about the quality of respect for just how it all is that um, allows the mystery of the world around me to reveal itself. It's like I'm, it's a worship service. And what we discover is that paying attention can bring alive a sense of reverence and bring it to anything that we do. This is a quote from Sharing Silence by Gwenilia Norris. We cannot really experience anything without being present to it. True presence requires that we be attentive to what is happening here and now. It is an offering of our awareness, our participation, and our willingness. This is a basic and profound respect. By such respect, we are deeply transformed. So can we bring this quality of respect and reverence to sitting down, to being quiet and paying attention? to the ritual of practice. Now there's some things that help. It helps to create an atmosphere. It's true in all things, but it, cre- it helps to create a sense of aesthetics, to put in the area where you do a regular sitting practice, the plants or pictures or shells or whatever it is that in some way connects you to the beauty and the mystery of this world. It helps to make sure that that you don't get interrupted. So many people practice but will go ahead and answer the phone (laughs) or leave their doors open, you know, so people can come in. Really respect and honor the process that you're a part of. For most of us it helps to have a regular time because if we leave it up to, eh, if I'm in the mood, then we haven't given it that deep respect that has a kind of commitment and a rhythm to it. To set an amount of time, and and it's not a rigid thing. When I say an amount of time, it could be, well, every day I'm going to sit for five or ten minutes to in some way listen to this inner life, to kind of honor or bow to the soul or spirit. 
And it doesn't matter what happens in that five or ten minutes. It doesn't matter whether the mind then goes off and gets preoccupied or we get sad or we get fearful or we just have to shift around because we're uncomfortable. There's some place deep in our being that recognizes we've planted a seed whenever we have made the effort to sit and be still. To, to experience that sacred pause where we've stepped out of the habitual doings and been willing to listen to our hearts. So this practice, this ritual, deserves that quality of reverence or respect. But as I mentioned earlier, our attitude needs to be quite kindly. It's like, go ahead and sit down, but then really benevolent towards whatever happens. I love the way Thich Nhat Hanh describes this half-smile of the Buddha. This kind of, um, and you can do it, you can have a half-smile on the face, a very slight but real smile, and it creates a whole mood of willingness to embrace whatever comes up. Because anything and everything can come up. Thich Nhat Hanh again, when he visited San Francisco Zen Center, the students there asked him how they could improve their practice. Here's what he said. You guys get up too early for one thing. (laughs) You should get up a little later. And your practice is too grim. I have just two instructions for you this week. One is to breathe and one is to smile. So setting an environment and a mood that's kindly, that's patient, that's respectful. Okay, so we've done that, and then we're sitting down in some way. And let me just say, unless, in case there's any misunderstanding, meditation practice is done in every posture, in every activity, in every setting of our entire existence. But there's a value to having a formal practice where we sit still. Because it's been found over the millennium that sitting still is a conducive environment for refining attention. in a recent newspaper. Well, not so recent, it was actually a couple of years ago. This life is a test. It is only a test. If it was a real life, you would have been told and you would have been given more specific information about where to go and what to do. This life is a test. There is a feeling sometimes that we're not living a real life. We're kind of going through the motions and what's real is going to come later or it was back then and we're on automatic in some way. We act like we know what we're doing or where we're going, but it's almost as if we're in a dream. And one of the beauties of meditation practice is we practice so that each moment becomes real life. Some of you have heard of Robert Thurman who, who about a year ago in a talk about meditation practice said, practice, practice, practice. That's all you Buddhists talk about. What I want to know is, When is the performance? (laughs) Well, it's not about a performance. We practice being here. This moment. This moment counts right now. This moment that you are formally listening to a talk as much as any moment in your life. And when our habit is to postpone significance, to think, well, the real thing is when we sit down and meditate again, or the real thing is when I'm on the top of a mountain with my best friend looking at the panorama, 
then huge swaths of moments go by that we haven't valued, that we haven't brought that same sense of reverence and respect to. So we practice so that more and more moments get included, that we consider more moments as counting. The essence of our practice is mindfulness. And the word mind can be misleading because it's heart-mind awakening. In Asia, the word for heart and mind in Sanskrit and several other of the scripts is really the same. So mindfulness, heartfulness, we practice to be awake, to know what's happening, to experience this moment fully. The, some of the signs of mindfulness that our attention's non-judging, that we're not holding on to what's going on, that we're not pushing away what's going on. So when we're really in that mindful, heartful place, our awareness is receptive and life arises, dissolves, it all just happens and there's a quality of letting be. When we touch moments like that, that we're not controlling or manipulating or pushing away or lost in thought, we cherish them. We feel fully alive. It's what we most love. And yet, as you know, and you can kind of reflect on today, consider, well, where were you today? How many moments of mindfulness, of sensing that kind of sacredness of pausing, that doesn't mean stopping activity, but pausing in the mental busyness of leaning into the next moment and the next moment, of trying to get things done, of being lost in thought. How many moments were you actually here, feeling the breath or sensing the mood in your body, are really beholding and aware of the being you were with, or the color of the sky and the leaves? How many moments of really knowing that you were there, awake, present? For most of us, not so many. And that's okay, because the beauty is as we practice, let's say in any one sitting for 20 minutes, let's say at the beginning you're lost in thought for 95% of the time. If even after a few months you're only lost in thought for 85% of the time, that's a difference. There's 10% more moments that were touched, that we were there for. So our intention, our aspiration is this wakeful heart and mind. And yet we need support. We need some skillful means so that we can be here for life. Because if I just gave the instructions, okay, sit still and be aware, be mindful, be awake. For most of us, our conditioning would determine that we were off in thoughts completely, the whole time, distracted, preoccupied, not here. So let's talk about some of the pieces that we practice, some of the skillful means that help create an environment for mindfulness. And the first, as you'll notice, the first part of each guided meditation that usually that I lead has to do with not only becoming still, but relaxing. 
Now, relaxing is radical. Relaxing, it's, you know, it's a common word, but really relaxing? I mean, check right now, is your body really relaxed? Just check. Is your mind relaxed? Is there really an ease, a settledness, a non-grasping? You all know the myth of Sisyphus, Sisyphus, the king of Corinth. You know how he was condemned by the gods to continuously roll this boulder up the hill and then watch it roll down again. And our lives are very much like that. We are wired biologically and by our culture and our family and so on to keep pushing in some way, keep striving, keep trying, keep resisting, keep tensing against life and trying to control things. And we have to keep redoing it over and over again. It's not like we ever really get it all done and then, hey, we can relax. There's always more. So the purpose of spiritual practice is to learn to let go of the war, to stop pushing so much, to take a vacation from all this striving and tensing, but not a vacation where we are off in a trance, rather the kind of vacation where we rest in wakefulness and ease and clarity, the sacred pause. So this relaxing, this letting go of the doing, the pushing the boulder, we start with our body, and then the mind usually follows, and that's the power of sitting still. Even if you sit still and your mind's kind of spaced out or trancy, there is uh, almost law of physics that there's some settling, the sediment settles some, there is some coming to rest. There's a wonderful word, a Chinese word, song, and it means relaxation that's filled with awareness. Just right now, if you will, let's, let's practice a little as we go. See if you can sit in a way that's alert, but let's practice this relaxation. Sitting up tall, but closing your eyes. Relaxation filled with awareness. To relax means to let go, to loosen the grip. There's places that we are unconsciously clenching all the time. So it helps to be intentional, to soften around the eyes. I have a teacher that says he can tell the whole personality and neurosis of a person just by the way that they tighten around their eyes. See if you can relax the flesh and soften around the eyes as the Taoists describe it, sensing a smile at the corner of each eye. And let the flesh through the face soften and relax. Our habitual tightening of muscles perpetuates our habitual tightness in the mind. And familiar thoughts keep arising then. So it's radical. Loosen in the belly. Another place that we tighten and armor to defend against life. 
For some, if you loosen, you really soften in the belly, you'll notice a lot of feelings, sometimes strong emotions. We try to push them away with the tightness of our musculature. So loosening and softening sometimes opens us to weather systems. What happens when you really relax through the body? Not slack, vital and alive. Another component of relaxing is called sinking. Let go of the weight you're holding, surrendering the weight to the floor. Allowing the tissues of the body to return to their intended place, to align with gravity. Just try it. Surrendering, sinking, Relaxation filled with awareness, soft and awake, feeling all the sensations. This embodied awareness is the environment for a wakeful heart and mind. We cannot be mindful without an embodied awareness. Now one last component is a quality of spaciousness, openness. So still feeling your body, include in your awareness the space that's all around you, behind you. Still feeling the sensations of your body, but extending behind you, your awareness to include a sense of space to the sides, in front, above, outward, in all directions, so that you're including sounds that naturally arise in this open awareness. Now listen. As if your embodied awareness is so huge that sounds happen in the space of body-mind. Let your conscious awareness extend outward to focus on the more distant sounds you can hear. As you hear more distant sounds, sense or imagine that the edge of your consciousness has extended out as far as the source of the sounds. Keeping a relaxed focus on the furthest sounds you can hear, slowly let the edges of consciousness dissolve. Begin to sense that pure, empty awareness extends without limit in all directions. Let consciousness become identical with space itself. 
that sounds appear and disappear in this vast space. Sensations vibrate, tingle. Ever-changing dance of sensations. So this world of experience is all happening in a relaxed, spacious awareness. See if you can, as we continue to move through this, let there be a um, seamlessness. So it's not like, okay, well now I meditated, now I'm going to stop meditating and go back to something different. But rather see how much you can let your awareness still be wakeful in your body. Kind of like you're 80% aware and awake in your body and and 20% is the sounds of coming through, arising, dissolving. So that's part of what's called skillful means of creating an environment that allows us to really be here in an open, relaxed way. Now there's another component, as you know, and that is concentration. That if we just left it open and relaxed, what would happen? It'd be, as one teacher's described it, we could be very peaceful, but kind of like a contented cow munching in the field. It can be just spaced out, you know, with no sense of knowing, of wakeful connecting with what's happening. No clarity. So concentration helps to connect with what's going on by quieting the thoughts and stabilizing the mind. Usually with concentration there is one focus that we choose. Here it's usually the breath. It could be the changing sounds that you hear. It could be a mantra. It could be something that you visualize. The reason we find that the breath is kind of a universally um, useful one is because everywhere you go you're breathing and so you can develop this ongoing place to come back home to again and again. Sure to use mental flaws to reconnect with awareness and presence. So what happens when we say let's sit and be quiet and relax and then focus on the breath. What we inevitably notice is the mind jumps around everywhere. It's the nature of mind. It just moves all over the place. Mind secrete thoughts and we get lost in them. So a primary capacity that we're developing in meditation is to begin to realize that we've been lost, to remember, to reconnect with a wakefulness that's not confined to a thought form. This is Swami Beyond Ananda. 
It is true, as we go through life thinking heavy thoughts, thought particles tend to get caught between the ears, causing a condition called truth decay. (laughs) So be sure to use mental floss twice a day, concentrating, letting go of thoughts, letting go, letting go, letting go. It's really central, this learning to concentrate and let go of thoughts. It's not easy, but it's central. Um, I read you from Thinkers Anonymous. It started out innocently enough. I began to think at parties now and then to loosen up. Inevitably, though, one thought led to another, and soon I was more than just a social thinker. (laughs) I began to think alone, to relax, I told myself. But I knew that it wasn't true. Thinking became more and more important to me, and finally I was thinking all the time. I began to think on the job. Now, I know that thinking and employment don't mix, but I couldn't stop myself. I began to avoid friends at lunchtime so I could read Thoreau and Kafka. I would return to the office dizzied and confused, asking, what is it exactly we're doing here? (laughs) Things weren't going so great at home either. One evening I had turned off the TV and asked my wife about the meaning of life. She spent that night at her mother's. I headed for the library in the mood for some Nietzsche with a PBS station on the radio. I roared into the parking lot and ran up to the big glass doors. They didn't open. The library was closed. To this day, I believe that a higher power was looking out for me that night. (laughs) As I sank to the ground, clawing at the unfeeling glass, whimpering for Zarathustra, a poster caught my eye. Friend, is heavy thinking ruining your life? You probably recognize that line. It comes from the standard Thinker's Anonymous poster, which is why I am what I am today, a recovering thinker. I never miss a TA meeting. At each meeting, we watch a non-educational video. Last week, it was Porky's. Then we share experiences about how we avoided thinking since the last meeting. I still have my job, and things are a lot better at home. Life just seemed easier somehow as soon as I stopped thinking. It takes a consistent, persistent training to work with thoughts. Thinking is a wonderful, essential part of who we are, and it does not define us, and it can imprison us. So it's probably the centerpiece of practice, is to keep waking up out of thought forms and reconnecting with the mystery and the vitality of this moment. For me, one of my best examples of the training in my own mind has to do with my dog and training my dog. Um, My dog's name is Tara also. We we both have the name, and there's a lot of jokes about how we're alike and so on. But my son, who doesn't think we're alike, he's always suggesting I be more like her. Because she's not judgmental, she's not bossy, she's not demanding, and she's more easygoing. So she, and she's also really cooperative, she, her intentions to please. So she goes out on these runs for me, with me. We go around the neighborhood and neither of us are on a leash. And she, she's become pretty good at staying with me, not running off. And, but inevitably there's these critical junctures where a squirrel will tempt her. And then she'll either race off and she'll risk her life, you know, cars, etc., to chase the squirrel or else Sometimes, because she knows I want, you know, I'm calling her to stay, she'll resist and renounce it. And I figure that she renounces chasing squirrels about 70% of the time now. That's 
pretty amazing. <laughs> Which I figure is about my average when I'm meditating, that, you know, that I'll go off in thoughts, but, but I won't chase them. As soon as I realize that, okay, it's, I'd actually rather be here than chasing them, I can drop them some. And with her, instead of racing off, what she does is she'll whimper a little, <laughs> and then she drops it, and that's kind of what I do too. You know, I, I kind of want to go off in that thought, because thoughts are, well, there's a reason we like chasing after our thoughts. They are part of our project for getting what we want and avoiding what we don't want. I mean, there's, there's a lot of uh, goodies in them, we think. Now, when she does chase after a squirrel, she never catches it. And the same thing, when I chase after things through my thoughts, I never really get anything. So we're both winning through this training. <laughs> anyway, thank you for bearing with me, but it really did hit me that <laughs> She's learning to resist and so am I. And the skillful means around thinking is simply we note it. We note what's happening. Squirrel, squirrel, thinking, thinking. And then we just relax what we're clinging to and drop back into what is. And there's a question usually when we drop the thought is, what's really happening right now? Sometimes we'll feel that there's a squeeze in the heart, like some tension, because there's fear frequently behind thoughts. And then it's really out of respect for, for the present moment. It, it's very healing to just relax the heart some, to learn to be here and not keep running. So our practice in concentration is really a practice in letting go of distraction and re-arriving again and again in the present moment. Now, for many of us, what we find is that we judge our practice and think, well, I'm not doing that. I'm off too much. And I just want to reassure you once again, everybody feels like they're thinking too much. (laughs) Okay? Everyone. So we're cultivating the garden. We're weeding in the sense of kind of kind of letting go of what's not the essence of where we want to be. And we're creating an environment that's relaxed and open and spacious so that we can connect with just what's happening. And it doesn't mean that what we're connecting to is necessarily pleasant or unpleasant. In a way, what we're committing to is just being real. And for many, it becomes quite clear that there's never any real freedom or happiness if we're not connecting with what's real. And the more that we are willing to touch the weather of this moment, whether it's anger or fear or excitement or boredom, the more we're willing to be with what's real, the deeper we get this confidence that we can handle life. And there's a sense of freedom, of fearlessness. The starting place where we're cultivating the garden, it's whatever's happening right now. What's true for you right now? This is the great kind of Zen-like inquiry. What's true right now? Because the truth and the awakening that's possible is possible in whatever your experience is in this moment. Rumi writes it this way. He says, Lo, I am with you always, means when you look for God, God is in the look of your eyes, in the thought of looking. Nearer to you than yourself are things that have happened to you. 
There is no need to go outside. It's all right here. So we'll once again do a bit of a meditation that includes some of the uh, skillful means and practices I mentioned and then open it up for any questions that you might have. This will be a short meditation. If you need to just stretch your legs out once more, do so, and then come sitting up. Now please allow yourself to sense that this particular little sitting is a ritual that deserves your wholehearted attention. And as part of a sense of reverence, to sense your aspiration even for these few minutes. Just sense your aspiration. The the word bodhicitta is this awakening heart-mind, this longing to be fully who we are, this moment, not some other time. Sensing your aspiration and then taking some moments to relax, to let down the weight of your body, to feel that relaxation that's alive, an embodied wakeful presence. including sound and space, to sense the spaciousness of awareness, the open quality. And within this openness, within this soft and open awareness, sensing the actuality of the breath. Letting the breath be the primary place for resting the attention, not controlling the breath. Breath like sound or sensations of other kinds just happens. Being breathed and noticing what it's like. And for these next few moments of silence, letting the breath be the center of your attention, unless something strong asks for attention, in which case that becomes the place of bringing an open, clear awareness.
clear and kind attention to whatever is happening in this moment. As a way of closing this sitting, we acknowledge our connectedness with all beings, offering the benefit, the merit from our practice, that it may help to relieve suffering, bring peace, bring ease to others also. May our moments together of practice, may all our efforts be of benefit to all beings. And closing with the chanting of Om in the same way that we open, bringing the palms together, connecting with the heart. Please inhale deeply. about your practice, questions about tonight, or any sharing about your experience when you became quiet and tried to relax or concentrate, follow the instructions, anyone. So this is a question that actually is relevant for every single person I've ever met, (laughs) which is given that in our daily life 
It's part of our activity to be thinking and frequently be in pressured environments. How do we maintain a sense of presence given that we inevitably get caught up in, in, the, in the thinking and in the tension? Is that... And it, it helps to know that we do it very imperfectly. I mean, that it's really a gradual process of learning to wake up in the midst of where we, in the past, went into automatic, went into tightness, went into reactivity. So for each of us through the day, we have some, some parts of the day more than others where we absolutely go unconscious, where we are in total reactive mode, are totally lost in our planning, our worrying. And the idea is not to try to eliminate thinking naturally, where, you know, thinking's a tool, but to try to weave through the day practices of remembering. And I'll, I'll share a few that I find useful for me, and then just to experiment. One, one for me is that I continuously, wherever possible, completely stop. You know, it might be once every 45 minutes, and it might be only for 20 seconds. But to really stop, and then just breathe, and reconnect with your body. There's an amazing power, you know, the, the Muslims will turn to Mecca, the Sikhs will say their banis or their prayers X times during the day, to intersperse through the day an intentional pause, and feel your body and breathe. It's like there's this radical, oh yeah, that's what matters. And though you might forget right away, there's still a little more of a flavor of presence. So whenever possible, use your body to reconnect you. The other thing is I set my aspiration or my intention a lot of times during the day. When I first wake up, I sit some. And I really, it's not very quick, I don't say it automatically, I really ask that question, what matters? about this life and this day. And what'll come up for me is usually something in the domain of um, to be kind, to be awake, to care. Sometimes it's like I feel sufficiently cut off that I just want to feel that sense of caring. Because when we're on automatic, you know, that thing about being busy is heart killing. Well, it's just, I want a little more sense of uh, tenderness. So sometimes what'll matter is just, may I remember to care, you know, to be here. So I'll set it at the beginning of the day. And then if I find myself way off balance, I get any of those flags, that time when I pause, I'll re-ask that question, what matters? So those are the two things, is really your intentionality and then the practice of pausing to reconnect. And beyond that, it's really just having a formal practice. If you each day have a formal practice where you in some way sit down and get quiet, there's somehow rather that provides a reference point. There's a little more of a uh, gravitational pull towards remembering when you get lost. So thank you. It's a, it's a beautiful question.
Could you hear that? Some couldn't. Um, that what's discovered is that if there's a daily practice, there's more of a, a remembering not to get lost in thoughts, but when a day is missed, then the next day it's kind of, there's a little more of a, a seductiveness and a kind of forgetting that happens. And it's true. It's, it really is like any other form of exercise that we're kind of developing a muscle of remembering. And there's not one person here that doesn't have that capacity to cultivate this, to learn to remember and be more fully here. And each one of us, when we don't practice, has the conditioning to forget. And I guess I just want to say that as much as I'm kind of being this cheerleader for practicing regularly, I'd like to equally be a cheerleader for being quite compassionate and forgiving about the fact that we all find it difficult and we all don't do it, don't practice according to some inner standard we have set for ourselves and to not get snagged in that feeling of judging and falling short around practice. To really do it because you love to wake up. Let practice come for this love of Dharma, of of seeing what's true and being real and not out of a sense of obligation. And that doesn't mean not to try to be consistent and rhythmic, but really see if you can tap into where the reverence is about it. And when you skip a day and get more seduced and go, oh great, this shows me what happens. Yeah, thank you. So why intend it? But there is something you can intend or have the aspiration for is may there be as many moments of wakefulness as possible. Just know what, in other words, make it very broad. It's not the kind of prayer of can I get a good parking space, you know? (laughs) I know a lot of people that did that 20 years ago when we first started meditating. So um, to keep your aspiration very at the kind of root, about have it be about just awakening, and then as you practice skillful means, sure, it's a good thing to relax, but the, deep, the real effort is to be present with however it is. So make the effort to let go and relax, and then you take what comes. So thank you for that, yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.